Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. Mountains capture people's imagination, don't they? Certain mountains in particular. Bear Wallow Mountain, Chimney Rock, Mount Mitchell, the highest peak east of the Mississippi, Looking Glass Rock, Mount Pisgah with the tower on the top. Black Balsam Knob, where we're hiking tomorrow, and where you're, you're invited to join us. Some of the most stirring scenery in God's creation is found at the foot of, and maybe even more, at the top of certain mountains. Which means that whether you're a hiker or a climber or a cyclist up those trails or just somebody that occasionally pulls over to the side for the scenic overlook, as a resident of Carolina, you can appreciate the biblical mountains that are so significant. There's the mountain that's right up against the shore of the Sea of Galilee where we're told Jesus would regularly go up the mountain all by himself and overlooking the waters below or looking at the blue sky above, he would pray, just he and his heavenly Father. Four of his writers tell about probably another mountain in Galilee where one day he took three of his disciples and he was transfigured before them. He showed them his glory as the Son of God from his face, from his clothes, and had this conversation with Moses and Elijah. King Solomon, when he was finally given the Lord's blessing to build a permanent place, a temple, where God would meet with his people, he built the temple on what was called Mount Zion. And the city of Jerusalem grew up on on and near that holy place. And then there is what some people consider the most glorious of all the mountains mentioned in the Bible, Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses and spoke to him while two million Israelites were waiting on the desert floor below, where the Lord God inscribed commandments, ten commandments on two tablets of stone and told Moses to pass these commands on to his people, where where the Lord gave instructions to, to and through Moses for the priesthood that the Israelites were to have and the sacrifices that would be acceptable to him and the tabernacle, the tent, where these sacrifices were to be offered up to the Lord. Mount Sinai, in in view of many people, uh, a glorious mountain at a glorious time for the glorious descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mention that because about 35 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, there were believers living near the city of Rome who were thinking about going back to that mountain. Now, they, they weren't they weren't pondering that we're going to move to Mount Sinai and live out in the desert nearby. They, they weren't really thinking about, we're, we'll live in tents again like, like our ancestors once did and wait for another Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. 
They were thinking about going back to Mount Sinai in their beliefs and in their practices. These believers living outside the city of Rome were Christians of a Jewish heritage. So their family members and their relatives and many of the people living on their street were Jewish, were Israelite. And they were getting harsh questions from them like, why are you abandoning the ways of our ancestors to follow this crucified Nazarene? Why would you dishonor Moses and the law given at Sinai in order to honor this supposedly risen from the dead king? Why don't you join us when we gather in keeping with God's commands on the seventh day? Why don't you go with us when we go to Jerusalem for the annual festivals, at least one of them a year? What was happening to these Jewish heritage believers living outside Rome is, according to a letter, they were not, their blood wasn't being shed, but they were being driven out of their synagogues, which meant they were being driven away from the acquaintances that they loved the most. They were being, losing their businesses, possibly being driven out of their communities. So here's what they were thinking, and I think you can, you can perhaps relate. If we just go back to Mount Sinai, then our people will accept us again. If we just go back to certain foods are considered unclean and we avoid them, as God commanded that at Sinai. If we go back to circumcision for the boys and head coverings for the men, because God commanded this. If we go back to offering the scapegoat and the Passover lamb and the Day of Atonement calf and to bringing the, the first grains from our fields to the priests and, and bringing the priests the bread from our ovens. If we do that, if we go back to Sinai and to the law, then, then the pressure will be off and then the persecution will, be, will end and then we can rejoice and be glad and maybe God will even bless us extra special. Would you consider doing that? I don't think so. I wouldn't either. Except, when the pressure's on me as a Christian, the first thing I do think about is, how can I, how can I address the matter of my doing and my not doing? How could I speak in such a way? Should I be more adamant about what's right and wrong or less adamant about that? How should I talk about others? Should I be more critical of those whose ways are immoral or less critical? In other words, I, I think first of the do's and the don'ts. Maybe you do the same thing. You know, if I could, if I, if I would just, if I would just love God more and love people more, then we'd get along more, wouldn't we? Then people would accept me. Or, or, or maybe you buy into what I, I hear almost as a mantra from Christians. And it goes like this. If we just get back to those Ten Commandments, 
if we just get back to the Ten Commandments, then the Lord will rescue our, our community and our nation from calamity. I think it's true of every single human being that when things are not going well with others and when there's pressure, if you want to call it persecution from others, oftentimes we think first of Mount Sinai and commands and how can, how can I do those things better or how can other people do those things better? Trouble is many people have a rather incomplete memory of Mount Sinai. Most people remember things that are very important, how at Mount Sinai you learn from that account that God is holy. He's, he's holy, holy, holy. And he expects that human beings will be holy. He does give commands. And he means them most sincerely. He does say, still, you shall have no other gods. And that anyone or anything, anything else should, should be forbidden from getting ahead of you and your love for and service to God. He says that. He says, you shall not... Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Or, or newer translation, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's people or, or, or their possessions. God is, is, is so sincere about his law as his will for all time that we do want to remember he inscribed it on stone tablets. It's, a, it's the permanent will of God. But what you also have to remember is there's no smiley face etched at the beginning of any of those commandments. And there's no laughing emoji at the end of any of them. There's no bit of humor from God to lighten the mood. In fact, Moses tells us that Mount Sinai was a terrifying place. He wrote there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Every one of the Israelites in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. God told Moses, put a limit around the mountain and forbid any person or animal from touching the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. No person or animal who does that shall be permitted to live. There's no joy at Mount Sinai. There's no everything's going to be okay here at the giving of God's law. Instead, there's a just and holy God who impresses on everyone that obedience to his commandments is a matter of life and death. Jesus was once discussing that simple summary of the Ten Commandments. You know, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, do this, keep doing this, and you will live. Step out of line in regard to any of God's commands. Step out of line 
in any action or inaction, any thought, any attitude, any desire, any plan, step out of line and you die. Thunder and lightning and a trumpet blast, smoke and fire and earthquake. God's very serious about his commands that, as one of the writers says, the soul that sins against any of them will die. Mount Sinai, the law, the commands of God. But you have not come to that mountain. By God's grace, you've been brought to another mountain. By God's grace, you've been brought to the mountain that is yours now and eternally through the work of Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to read that passage with me again? It's, it's page 9 in the worship folder. Page 9 from this letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, brought to their goal, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Obviously, the mountain that you've been brought to cannot be hiked or climbed or touched. It's seen with Christian faith and as a mountain. In Christian faith, we recognize the permanence and the beauty of this place. It's the mountain described in Revelation chapter 21, this mountain of the new Jerusalem, where God lives with and among his people visibly and eternally where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This Mount Zion, this new Jerusalem, sin and Satan and death and hell have been banished. This new Jerusalem, later in Revelation chapter 1, has several gates, and each gate is fashioned of a single pearl. There's no need for sun or moon in this Mount Zion and in this new Jerusalem. For as John was shown, God himself, the glory of God, is its light, and the Lamb of God is its lamp.
Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, where angels are gathered in joyful assembly. The, the, the mountain that you have been gathered to by God's grace, the mountain which is right now and eternal, is the mountain where God is the judge of all. But not such a judge where you stand before him and you go, oh no, I hope he doesn't mention what I did. I hope he doesn't mention what I thought so many times. I hope he doesn't hold it. No, it's not such a mountain. It's a mountain where God, the judge, chooses to forget your wrongs for the sake of the lamb that he sacrificed for you once for all. It's the mountain where names are already written in heaven. It's, it's the mountain where you've not come to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, but you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. It's the Bible's fourth chapter. First chapter of the Bible, God creates all things by the power of his word. Second chapter, more specifically, God tells us how he created the man and the woman, and he brought them together as, as a marriage and as family. Third chapter, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God, and he, he promises to rescue them and to crush their foe, but justice must also be served, so Adam and Eve are banished from the garden that God made for them. And then the fourth chapter, Adam and Eve have two sons. They name them Cain and Abel. In a fit of, of jealous rage, Cain murders Abel. And then afterwards, God confronts Cain, and he says, your brother's blood cries out to me for justice, for punishment of the one who murdered him. Ever since, the blood of Abel has represented the cry for justice, for making things right by punishment, like, like Mount Sinai does. The giving of the law and the threats of punishment to those who do not obey. But you've not been brought to that mountain. At your baptism and as you come forward to the sacrament, you recognize I've been brought by God's grace to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem, to the mountain where the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You get it? The blood of Abel cries out for justice and punishment. The blood of Jesus pleads for mercy. The blood of Abel calls for what the law calls for. The blood of Jesus speaks of forgiveness by the gospel. You've been brought to Mount Zion, where love is not merely commanded, but love, God's love, pure love, is given graciously, freely, generously. Amen.